why we preach the Word of God every week. It is God's Word. It is God-breathed. And holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But these men, as they wrote, they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but as they wrote, their own personalities come out in the epistles that we read. So it was not a mere diction and just writing, a mechanical process. So we read in John, John writes in in 1 John and talks about his little children. My dear little children. And we sense that in in, in all of his writings and many of the, the, Paul's uh, writings as well and, and Peter, that we sense their personality that is coming through in their writings. And the Holy Spirit uses that. And as we think about the scriptures, there is this dual authorship that we have. They were men indeed who were moved along by the Spirit of God And they communicated the very words of God, but God did this through their own personalities. And we, I say that because here is John using the conventional way of writing a letter in the first century to communicate with those that he is writing to. So this form of this letter was very familiar to them as they received this letter But they receive it, even as the Thessalonians received Paul's words, where Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, I am thankful to God that when you received the word from us, you did not receive it as the word of men. But what it truly is, it is the word of God. We can be thankful today for the word of God that we have inspired by God and given through the apostles, through prophets, that is for us. So we want to look at the format of this. We see, again, the format of this. We think of an introduction, and this is what we have in verses 1 to 3. It's an address, and it's a greeting, and uh, John immediately is identifying himself not directly, but indirectly. So we have the author of this epistle, and this was common in the first century. I think it was a good idea that you identified yourself first when you wrote the letter. When we get a letter, we have to go to the end of the letter to see who wrote it. But here, in the first century, they would, they would identify themselves, the author of this epistle. And here he's identified as the elder. And then we have the recipients. This is referred to as the elect lady and her children. We'll look a little bit in a little bit more about what this might mean. And then there is the typical greeting, which we have in verse 3, a salutation that is given as a letter is open. So this was very common in the first century. And then we have the main body of this letter, and it is in verses 4 to 11, and it is full of exhortation, exhortation about living in the truth, walking in love and walking in the truth. We're going to find a lot of similarities with 1 John. And so John is concerned about walking in the truth. And I've entitled this series, this short series, Living in Truth and Love. Those things always go together, truth and love. And this is one thing that John is going to be careful to bring out here in this little epistle 
And then he is also going to speak about, in verses 7 to 11, uh, with regard to what do we do with false teachers that are peddling a different message? Are we to show hospitality to them? Are we to welcome them? And this was an issue. And uh, so a lot of the things that we looked at in 1 John with regard to these false teachers that had been in the church, who had gone out from them, now uh, John is addressing another issue with regard to this letter. And again, it's similar to what was happening in 1 John, these false teachers that denied the preexistence of Christ. They denied the incarnation. They, they, they denied the saving work of Christ. Well, what do we do if we come across someone? And in the first century, hospitality was a very vital part of of the Christian culture. And uh, so what, what would we do with someone that is coming and saying that they're Christian, they're looking for hospitality, what do we do when we know that, again, they're peddling a different gospel? And John will he'll address that. So he mentions in verse 7 that many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. That's really no surprise to us, is it? As we think about this gospel that is going out into the Roman Empire, and it's amazing in such a short period of time of how this gospel is going forth through the apostles and churches are being planted and the gospel reaches all the way to Rome, uh, the capital of the Roman Empire. And it should be no surprise to us that as the gospel goes forth, that Satan and his minions are right on the heels of the gospel to distort it, to pervert it, and to twist it. And so we see this happening very early in the life of the church, even in the first century. And then we have, as in our letters, we have a conclusion, verses 12 and 13. Now, 2nd and 3rd John are the two shortest books in the New Testament. Uh, 3rd John uh, is a little bit shorter than 2nd John, both of them less than 300 Greek words. So it probably would fit on what would be one page of notebook paper or papyrus in those days. And what we find John doing in both of these is he's dealing with an immediate issue that needs to be addressed. So rather than a long epistle like we have the book of Romans or the book of Ephesians, longer epistles we have here, something that's more like a postcard. It's very short, it's very brief, and it is to the point. Some complex issues require longer detailed letters, and yet there are times such as this when a large issue might seem to be complex and confusing, and the best way to address it is to deal with it directly, clearly, and concisely in a very short and definitive way. And this is what we find, I think, here with first, or second and third John. We looked, secondly, this morning at the author and the recipients of this epistle. First of all, identifying the author. Now, you might say, well, it's pretty obvious. It says at the top of my page here, it says the epistle of second John. John wrote this. Well, they didn't have this at the top of the letter when it came. The author identifies him simply as the elder. He is the elder. 
Now, what's clear to us may not have been so clear to some maybe in the first century, but I think to the readers who were receiving this, they knew who it was. They knew that it was John, and he describes himself as the elder. Interestingly enough, as we think of John, he doesn't reveal himself in the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John. He doesn't identify himself by name. Now, he does in the book of Revelation, but in these, he does not ever use his name. And it's interesting, in the Gospel of John, John is writing this, but he's always kind of in the shadows. And he describes himself as, for instance, in the upper room when he was laying his head upon the breast, the chest of Jesus. He does not mention him as being the one, but it says the one who is the disciple whom Jesus loved was laying his head upon his chest. The one whom the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now there may have been a special relationship, but I think John was just overwhelmed that Jesus loved him. And this is something that he could never get over. That this is the disciple whom Jesus loved, a fisherman who he called to be his own disciple and he loved him. So he identifies himself here in this letter just as the elder, the elder. And again, I think the recipients knew exactly who it was. He had a relationship with them, and he knew them. And so this word actually can be an old man, someone who is elderly. And this, in fact, is true for John. He is probably at this time, the last living apostle, probably all of the others have already died, most of them, all of them martyred. But now he is up in his years. This is toward the end of the first century. And here he is this elderly man. And as we think of the life of John the Baptist, or excuse me, of John the apostle, what a difference we find from the time that Jesus met him until this time now in his life. He's now an elderly man seasoned in the faith. But you remember John, as we read about him in the Gospels, when Jesus ministered and called him to be his disciple. We read in Mark 3.17, as he was calling his disciples, he said, Uh, It's giving the list here. It was Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boenerges, which means sons of thunder. So here is a name that Jesus used for James and John, who are brothers. They were the sons of thunder. We have a hint of this maybe when Jesus was, had set his face to go down to Jerusalem. And as he is making his way to go to Jerusalem, he had sent messengers ahead of him to make preparations for their travels. And as they are going through Samaria, looking for food, maybe a place to stay, he sends forth these messengers. And as they came, the, the Samaritans did not receive them. They did not receive Jesus. 
And when word gets back to Jesus and to the disciples that, you know, they won't accept us. It says that when the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Uh, We see a little bit of the, I think, the sons of thunder there. You want us to call down bolts of lightning? It may well be, and it would seem that John has this fiery temper as a fisherman there on the Sea of Galilee, along with his brother James. Another thing that we learn about James and John is in Matthew or Mark 10, verse 35. It says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. How do you like that? Do whatever we ask, Jesus. And he said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? Here's what they said. Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. We think we really deserve those two special seats on either side of you. And so we get this sense of James and John, and their mother was kind of like this too, that... They were very self-centered, thinking only of of themselves, selfish, fiery-tempered. But what we see in the life of this apostle, as he's now an elderly saint, the way in which the early church remembered John was not that he was the son of thunder, but that he was the apostle of love. That's how he was known in the early church, the apostle of love. And what we see in the life of John here, as we read and we'll see next week, is that for John, there is the importance of truth, but there is also the importance of of love. Those two must always go together. They are married together for us as Christians. And for John, sometimes there was an imbalance. He was one maybe that was strong on truth, one to call down thunder from heaven, lightning from heaven, judgment. Really didn't sense the heart of Christ in those early years. But now we see a man who is more balanced, a man who speaks about truth, but also a man who speaks about love, and those things must go together. And what we see in these many years that he has grown in grace. And I wonder if that would be said of us, that over the years that we can see that there is not an imbalance, but there there is a balance in our life of truth, and love in our life. Love for the truth, to be sure, but love for others in the application of that truth to their lives. There is this wonderful balance in his life, and so many times in our Christian life we can get out of balance. And I pray by God's grace that we may grow in grace to have that balance. Halsey wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 
says, let no man despise your youth. Be an example to the believers in word and conversation and charity and faith and purity. And he says several things to Timothy. And then he says to Timothy, may your progress become evident to all. And I hope that we could say that. May our progress, our growth in grace, be made evident to all who know me, that they can see a change that is taking place by the grace of God in my life. And so here is John, a seasoned saint, well-balanced, this elderly man. But there's probably more to this word. It's not just that he is old. He is that. But this word is also a word that is used for an elder, a leader in the church, a pastor, a shepherd. And so this probably is also a part of this, that he's not just an elderly man with wisdom, but he is also one who is a church leader. Even as Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 1, the elders who are among you, I exhort I am, who am also a fellow elder. So here is John, who is an apostle, but he is one who, and and one who has authority. And uh, this is the one who is now writing this letter to these individuals. And that leads us to identify these recipients. Who are are the recipients of this letter? It's interesting. It's described in verse 1. It's to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. The question might be asked, is this a person or is it a personification? And there are two different views about who this elect lady is. And one is that it is just to be taken as a lady, an unnamed lady, but a lady that would have been known to John, a lady that would have been known to the church there to whom he's writing and the people who knew her. And it was a person an actual person. Clement uh, of Alexandria thought this was actually a, a proper name, the word that is used for chosen or elected. He said this is a name, Electa, that she's the lady Electa. Well, if that's the case, in verse 13, she's got a sister by the same name, so I don't think that probably is the case. So there are those who said that this is a a lady, an unnamed lady who was known to everyone there. A woman who probably was given to hospitality and she had questions about these men that were coming and what she should do. Then there is a second view and that is that it's a personification or it's used metaphorically. It's not speaking a, literally of a lady, but it's speaking here to speak about the church, a local church, a specific local church church. And what we find, this this would be the only place in the New Testament where that would be true. However, what we find in the New Testament is the church is often referred to in a feminine sense. We know in Ephesians 5 that husbands, you are to love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, his bride. We are the bride of Christ. We also read in uh, in 2 Corinthians eleven two, Paul, writing to a local church, says this, I have a godly jealousy for you. I betroth you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin 
to Christ. 1 Peter 5.13, she who is at Babylon, many believe this is the church at Rome, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. So Peter's writing to a church and refers to her in the feminine uh, way. And then Revelation 21.2, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So the Bible uses that feminine, the, the, the church as the bride of Christ, and so that would not be out of line. But we also see there's really no personal reference to this lady, as we see in Second or Third John, there are three men that are mentioned there, Gaius and Diotrephes and Demetrius. And, and John speaks very clearly and gives their names and even identifies various things about them. Diotrephes was the man who loved attention, getting preference, preeminence in the church. But we don't find that in this letter. And we find that not only just he doesn't just use singular pronouns for you, he uses plural the idea that he was speaking to more than just the lady and even her children, but a broader audience speaking to the members of this church. And then also the exhortation in verse 10, that you're not to receive this false teacher into your house nor greet him, would be an exhortation that would be necessary for the whole church. So this view says this is a specific, unnamed local church The children are the members of that church. And uh, in verse 13, it mentions the children of your elect sister. They greet you. This would be another church. And they are sending their greetings through this epistle. And this is probably the church where John is at. Many believe that he was at Ephesus. So this is another view that it is speaking about a local church. So there are a lot of differences. There are these two main differences, and I think arguments can be made either way. Uh, I kind of have been leaning toward the local church. It seems to me to be the more suitable to that. But either way, what is really important is the message that is being communicated. But I do want us to see how he describes this lady or this church. She is the elect lady. She, this word is the word to choose, to select. And this is a term that is not just applicable to that church or to if it is a specific woman. It is a term that can be used for any child of God, anyone who is a Christian. They are the elect. They are the chosen one. She was a chosen lady. Now, this is a word in the Bible that is not a bad word. A lot of people think when you mention the word elect or chosen, that's a bad word. We don't, we don't like to talk about that. But this is really at the heart of the gospel of grace. God has chosen a people. He's elected them before the foundation of the world, that they might be holy and blameless before him. Paul writing to the Romans, just as he closes out that letter, he writes and he says, Greet Rufus chosen in the Lord. And he wasn't starting, he wasn't, he wasn't wanting to start a church fight by making that statement. He's just saying this is true of Rufus. He's one who's chosen in the Lord. This lady is elect. She's chosen in the Lord. 
And if we be in Christ, this is true of us. Turn, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I appreciate these words of Paul as he's writing to this church and as he is addressing them. We read in verse 2, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love and patience, of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Notice this, verse 4. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit. And you became examples in Macedonia and Achaia to all who believe. So so what John, or excuse me, Paul says to them, as I look at your lives, I see the fingerprints of God upon your life. That you love the gospel, you love Jesus Christ. Your faith, I see, your labor of love, your patience, your hope in the Lord. All of these things are telling me, brethren, that you have been chosen, elected by God. It is God's grace that has brought about this work in you, that he has chosen them. And as we think about this, we recognize that as believers... That salvation is all of grace. That we were recipients of God's amazing sovereign grace. And that God had loved us with a love that is rooted in eternity past. When he chose us together with Christ to be his own. So just as he begins this letter, we are reminded of the grace of God that has brought this about. And notice he says, and appropriately so, this elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. I love in truth. It is the gospel that knits our hearts together, isn't it? This gospel, this truth, that takes people who have a lot of different backgrounds there is a love that is brought about by the grace of God. John Stott says this, We are bound to our fellow Christians by this special bond of truth. This gospel knits our hearts together. Truth is the ground of reciprocal Christian love. This is what it produces in every Christian. Love for others who are of the truth, who are of the gospel. John stresses the fact by his four references to the truth in these three opening verses. We do not love each other because we are temperamentally compatible or because we are naturally drawn to one another, but because of the truth which we share. It is this gospel, the gospel of grace that we have come to embrace by God's grace that knits our hearts together with others. And notice Paul goes on, or John goes on and says, and uh, I, uh, whom I love in truth, and not only I, 
but also those who have known the truth. Everyone else who knows Christ and has embraced this truth, they also, they love you as well. And this is, this is what the gospel brings about. Henry Alford said, the communion of love, which the body of Christ enjoys, is as wide as the communion of faith to everyone who is in Christ. This communion, communion of love is as wide as the communion of faith of true believers. I had the privilege on Thursday afternoon to meet people I had never met before. They were going to the Creation Museum, and I was taking them some tickets, and I met them at La Rosa's down in uh, Lawrenceburg. And here were six young adults from Montreal and one from Quebec, and their, her pastor will be here with us tonight. Never met them before. They got out of the car, and immediately, within minutes, there was this sense of a bond of love. I could see they knew and loved Jesus Christ. And just for 10 minutes, there are these people I never had met before, three of them from Syria who had gone to Montreal and by God's grace were saved there. We met and there was immediately in my heart and I sensed in theirs this unity and this bond that we have in the truth. What a, what a wonderful thing that is. I went to Mongolia, a place very different from our land here. And I met believers there, very different backgrounds, culture from mine. And the same experience, this unity, this love that we have in the truth. H. Howard Marshall said, The truth is something which has come to stay in the members of the church, and it exercises an inner dynamic on them to love. The truth has a personal influence within Christians. Notice verse 2. Because of the truth which abides in us and will be in us forever. What an amazing statement. This gospel, this truth that we've embraced, it's in us and it's going to be in us forever. He who began the good work in us is going to continue that work. And this truth will remain in the hearts of God's people forever. And it is that truth that knits their hearts together with those of like faith. And so here is this wonderful dynamic of truth and love, this love that John had for this elect lady. And then just in closing, the, the salutation that is given in verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. And here it is again in truth and in love. How tempted sometimes we might be when we read through some of these epistles just to briefly read through the salutation, the greeting that is given. But these are packed with truth. Grace. Grace, unmerited favor. This is what we have received from the Lord through his son, Jesus Christ. We have received grace. He's not dealt with us according to our sins. And we have received mercy. Mercy is something that is given to those 
who are broken, who are destitute, who are helpless. He has pitied us. He has shown mercy to us. And then we have, as a result of this overflowing love and grace and mercy of God, we have peace. We have been reconciled and restored to our God, the greatest and the best of all beings, the fountain of living water, the source of eternal life and true blessing is ours in him. And also we have peace within, don't we? In this troubled world, full of trials and difficulties and hardships, there is the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension. No matter what we may be facing, here is peace that comes to us through the gospel. And it makes us to be peacemakers. As Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall inherit the earth. I think I got that right. I think it's the meek that inherit the earth. Peacemakers, what do they do? They shall be called the sons of God. Well, you tell me afterwards. But the gospel makes us to be peacemakers, not fighting and warring, but peacemakers. And the way in which John writes this salutation, he writes it not as a prayer and not as a wish, but he's making a confident affirmation here with the way in which he writes it. Grace, mercy, and peace will be, it will be with you And it comes from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. He wants to make that clear because that's been an issue in truth and love. This overflowing love of God has come to you from God the Father through his Son. It's applied to us by the Spirit. Grace and mercy and peace. They are ours in Christ. Let's stand together as we are dismissed. And as we do, we're going to sing just a cappella. We're going to sing together the doxology. But I'm going to pray first, and then we'll join together and sing the doxology. Oh, Lord, our God, we come to you as a needy people. We thank you for such grace with which you have loved us. We ask, Lord, that you would make us to be a people who have a wonderful balance in our life, a balance between truth and love. Make us to be a people who are growing in grace, that we are seeing in our lives more and more Christ-likeness in us. Lord, would you continue the work that you've begun in us? If there are any here outside of Christ who do not know, who do not love, who do not follow Christ, who do not really ultimately know the truth of the gospel, oh, Lord, it is our prayer that you would draw them savingly to this, the only Savior 
and friend of sinners. May they come and may they cast themselves upon him and the salvation that is found in him alone. May you do that for their good and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Join together with me and let us sing together. Praise God from